You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Prophet Micah lived in dark, grim times. The people of his nation, Judah, were up to their ears in iniquity. There was an obsession with money. Um, That obsession was everywhere in the land. There was disregard for justice everywhere. True religion was dead and formal. And the spiritual leaders of the country were woefully deficient. The people looked to them for guidance and were disappointed. I suppose it's not unlike the society that we're living in currently. Now, while the spiritual condition of the nation may well have been nothing more than a topic of conversation of the citizens in general, it was something far, far different for Micah. Because Micah was called by God to do something about it. He was called to boldly confront his people with their sins, to call them to heartfelt repentance, and to assure them of crushing devastating judgment if they refused to repent. He was called to stand up openly while others sat, to speak while others maintained a polite silence, to arm himself with the truth of God while others melted into an easy, non-confrontational coexistence. That was Micah's calling. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that is your calling and my calling in the society in which we're living in. We're not called to melt into the background into a non-confrontational situation. We're called to confront evil wherever we find it and to call it out for what it is. And Micah was equal to the task. Listen to him as he thunders in Micah chapter 3 and verse 12. If you just turn back there, you'll see it, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. That whole chapter 3 there is all about the judgment of God that's hanging over the people like the sword of Democles. Judah was the tribe of David. Jerusalem was the city of David. David's descendants sat on the throne of Judah. And was calamity now to befall the nation? Was was David's family to be cast away? Well, while it, it was often necessary for Micah to point or to paint his message with somber black, that was not his only shade. He was also able to lift up his eyes and he was able to to look over the centuries of time to see a glorious future. And he looks over at the little village of Bethlehem and he addresses it in Matthew 5 and verse 2 with those familiar words. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. 
Verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. You, Bethlehem, though you're small, Bethlehem was to have a central role in the glorious future of the people of God. Out of her, the long-promised-for Messiah would come. Now, certain truths emerge from Micah's prophecy that I think are worthy to give a little bit of careful study to. First of all, we see the reliability of God's Word. The reliability of God's Word. It, It seems, I suppose, like stating the obvious, but I'm a great believer in stating the obvious. His prophecy had to be an enormous consolation regarding the reliability of God's Word. In the midst of all that was happening, they were under the judgment of God. There was impending disaster before them. But beyond that, they were being told that Bethlehem is going to be used mightily for God. Bethlehem was, of course, the birthplace of David. And God had made a covenant with David to the effect that his house would be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. And so Micah's message of judgment may have created something of a dilemma for some of his contemporaries. How could such judgment be reconciled with the promise that God had made regarding the future of the nation and the coming of the Messiah? Did they... Uh, looming judgment mean the destruction of the nation? Did it, did it mean that God's promise had been nullified? Well, Micah's word to Bethlehem, David's birthplace, had, had to come as an encouragement to everyone, to everyone who was vexed about this dilemma. The Messiah, David's descendant, was going to spring from Bethlehem and was going to rule in Israel just as God had promised. Because God's word is secure, and God's word is reliable, and God's word is trustworthy. And of course, we know what happened centuries later. The Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, just as Micah had prophesied. And we are wise if we let Christmas remind us each year of all the fulfilled prophecies of Scripture. It really is a good time to be reminded of those prophecies. And if we conclude from these fulfilled prophecies that God's holy word can always, always be trusted, then we are wise to trust God's word fully and gladly and completely and implicitly and continuously even when circumstances are against us, even when everything seems to be against us, as it was in Micah's day. Now, how do you deal with those who say that they don't believe the Bible is true or who say that they believe that the Bible contradicts itself? And brother or sister in Christ, whenever you attempt to witness for the Lord Jesus. One of the things that we do is we use the Word of God, naturally. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the only weapon that we have, the only offensive weapon that we have. When we go on the offensive, we use the Word of God. So whenever you begin to try and share your faith with someone, 
you'll quote scripture. And someone will say, but I don't believe the Bible. Or I believe the Bible contradicts itself. How do you answer that? Well, I would suggest that you answer it with a question. Ask them, have they ever read the Bible? I'm amazed at the number of people who have said they don't believe the Bible. And when I ask them that question, well, the answer is no, they haven't read the Bible. But Well, how do you know you don't believe it if you haven't read it? How do you know the Bible contradicts itself if you haven't read it? I would encourage you to read it. The Bible, I would encourage anyone to examine the Scriptures. It's there to be examined. No Christian would would say to any, oh no, don't read that bit or don't read. No, read it all. Read it all. The more you read, the better. But read it. But then take them to the prophecies in the Old Testament regarding Christ's birth. Show them how various events were predicted hundreds of years before they take place. Not just regarding Christ's birth, but regarding Christ's death. Take them to Isaiah 53 and say, read it to them and say, what do you think that describes? Take them to Psalm 22. How does it begin? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Read through Psalm 22 and you'll see that they have pierced my hands and my feet. Ask them, look, what do you think that describes? Well, it describes crucifixion. It describes crucifixion before crucifixion was invented. It it describes it in such detail that you'd think the writer was standing at the foot of the cross describing what has taken place. So it's so important at a time like this, a time of the year like this, to look at those prophecies and familiarize ourselves with them so that we're able to say, look, these things have been predicted in detail. And the Lord Jesus fulfilled these prophecies to the letter. And then apply those prophecies, or apply uh, the word of God to them as far as the prophecies that are as yet unfulfilled, that point to his second advent, to his coming again. And then you're able to say, look, just as he came exactly as the scriptures predicted, exactly in the right place at the right time, so he will come again. Now tell me this, are you ready for that? You could say to the person you're trying to witness to. And I could say to you if you're not a Christian today, are you ready for his second advent? because he is coming again. And what I've tried to show you there, even in those few minutes talking about the word of God, is that it is completely and utterly true. There is such a thing in this world as absolute truth. Though society out there would try to deny it, they would say that, you know, truth is, it's malleable. It's changeable. It's not. There's such a thing as absolute truth, and the Bible is absolute truth. It is the Word of God. It is completely reliable. Now listen. Jesus is coming again.
He may come today. He may come this week. If he came today, would you be ready to face him? But there's more to this prophecy than simply the reliability of the Word of God. Here we also get a glimpse into God's delight in taking something that is small and insignificant and exalting it. And that's the second thing that I want to look at. God's delight in exalting the insignificant. And, and we saw that from 1 Corinthians as well. But it's noteworthy that the Messiah begins this prophecy by emphasizing the littleness of Bethlehem. You know, do you see what he says? Boys, I am so glad that light, come on. That light is just great. Uh, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, though you are small, Bethlehem was small in population, but it was not to be small in significance. Its name, here's the wonderful thing, its name is as well known today as the great metropolitan centers of the world. Bethlehem is as well known as London. It's as well known as New York, though it's tiny in comparison. And it's not so well known because it's such a big or important place. No, no. It's because of its significance. It's because it was there that the Messiah was born, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And because of that, Bethlehem will be significant forever while time lasts. Bethlehem will be significant. I've often wondered, you know, how modern man would have scripted Christmas if, <clears throat> if it had been left to him to decide. It would probably have been decided that the time of Jesus' birth would, should be delayed until the modern age of satellites and computers. And, and then his birth should be in one of the great media centers of the world, uh, whether it's Tokyo or London or wherever, so that, so that it could be spread throughout the world more quickly. Um, if, if the time of Jesus' birth could not be changed, maybe they could at least have, it could have taken place not in Bethlehem. I mean, who's ever heard of Bethlehem? But in, in Jerusalem. You know, there's the center of Judaism and everything in the Old Testament. Surely Jerusalem would be a good place. Or, or, or Rome. But God never does things as man would do them. He had no regard for the very things that we consider to be important. He disregarded the big and flashy and glamorous. And his son was born in tiny Bethlehem. And he not only chose Bethlehem to be the birthplace of his son, but he also chose a mere peasant girl to be his mother. And, and when the time came for Jesus to be delivered, it didn't even take place in the finest facilities that tiny little Bethlehem had to offer. No. It was in a cattle shed. 
And the place where Mary laid him was not a beautiful ornamental cradle. It was a feeding trough. It was a manger. And the first people to come and pay homage to the Savior were simple rustic shepherds who had been out in the fields watching over their flocks. And it was no different in Jesus' childhood. He grew up not in Jerusalem, but in Nazareth. In Nazareth, a village so despised that there was a proverb about it. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And his, his rearing in Nazareth was, was not in the grandest setting which that village had to offer. No, it was a humble carpenter's shop. That's where he grew up. The humility of his birth the humility of his upbringing continued in the public ministry of Jesus. He, he spoke of the foxes having holes and the birds of the air nests, but, but he had nowhere to lay his head. The Apostle Paul loved to emphasize the humility of the Lord Jesus in his coming to this earth. To the Corinthians, he writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. And the truth is that the direction of Christmas for the Lord Jesus was all downwards. Downwards, down from his glory, down to Bethlehem, down to Egypt, down to the carpenter's shop in Nazareth, down into rejection in his public ministry, down into the fiery anguish of being forsaken by his Father on the cross, down into the grave. The only time Jesus went up was when the work the Father had sent him to do was all completed when it was finished. <coughs> and then he rose up from the grave. He ascended back into heaven's glory to take his place at the right hand of God the Father. Now, why is all this important? Why is it necessary for us to take note of God's pattern of stooping down to exalt the low and the humble? Well, I believe it's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, in regard to the way of salvation. First, it tells us something of what is necessary for an individual to be saved. The way to salvation is down. It's to stop defending ourselves against God and his word and to take our place in submission before him, to humble ourselves before him, to admit before him we're wrong and he is right. To admit before him that we've got it wrong all along throughout our whole lives. We've been so selfish. And owning him as our rightful sovereign and humbly accepting the salvation that he has provided through his son. No longer depending on ourselves. No longer looking to our abilities or our good works. But looking to him. 
As long as you are on your feet, spouting your opinions and making light of the shed blood of Christ, you can be sure the grace of God that brings salvation is not at work in your heart. When that grace works in a person's heart and life, it is with one good purpose in mind, stated so aptly by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. No flesh should glory in his presence. God saves sinners by humbling them to the very dust so that the glory of salvation might belong to him and to him alone, so that all who glory will glory in the Lord. So it's important as far as the way of salvation is concerned, but it's also the key to blessing. If we want God's power to flow through us, if we want God's power to use us, we have to become small in our own eyes, little in our own eyes. <clears throat> Paul reminds us of this, doesn't he, in powerful terms. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. James and Peter also reminded us of this truth in these forceful words. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James follows this word up by writing, humble yourselves then in the sight of God, in the sight of the Lord that he will lift you up. And Simon Peter follows his quote by, therefore humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may exalt you in due time. In these days in which we live, these days of obsessive Self, uh, obsessive interest in self-image and self-esteem and self-promotion, we would do well to look again at tiny little Bethlehem and become small in our own sight and humble ourselves. Do you know, it's something that is missing in society today, humility. It's one of the first signs that I look for in a person's life who professes faith in Christ. I look for humility. You know, whenever I, I watch, and I try to watch as often as I can, Prime Minister's Question Time every week in the House of Commons, I tell you, there's not much humility there. Everybody knows the answers. It doesn't matter what the problem is. And it doesn't matter who's given the answers. It doesn't matter whether it's the government or the opposition. They all have the answers. I long to hear in Parliament someday somebody get up and say, there's a God in heaven before whom all of us must give an account one day. What about trying to do what is right for a change? Instead of trying to do what is acceptable and pleasing to the people, why don't we just do what is right? 
and see where that gets us. Because the country is in a terrible state. Now, you might be tempted to think it's in such a state that, oh, it's just going to go from bad to worse, and it may do, unless God intervenes. But I look back to another time in our history, back to the 1730s, when every other house in London was a gin house. When, when people were living in abject poverty and in the darkest sin, and, and there seemed to be nothing. But, but God did a work in a man's life in Bristol, in George Whitfield's life. And God was working in the lives of John and Charles Wesley. They were at Oxford at the time. And George Whitfield went to Oxford and he met them. And the, Whit, the, the, the Wesleys were very religious. They formed a group called the Holy Club. And, and they were into good works in a big way and, and of fasting and praying, but they weren't converted. And, and the Wesleys went across the Atlantic to try to convert the Indians. And they weren't converted themselves. And on the ship were Moravians. And in a terrible storm that they thought they were going to lose the ship, they saw these Moravians. They were so cool, calm, and collected. The Wesleys were astonished, and they realized that, that they didn't know the Lord themselves. And when they came back to London, John Wesley had that encounter, and he was, felt himself strangely warmed to God and was converted. But before that, George Whitfield was converted. And Whitfield is not the one who gets the credit. It's the Wesleys who get the credit. But it was Whitfield that God used mightily in open-air preaching. It was Whitfield who introduced the Wesleys to open-air preaching. It was Whitfield who preached to crowds of, of, listen to this, and it was scientifically proved by Benjamin Franklin in America. Whitfield crossed the Atlantic at least 10 times in the 1740s. You think of what that was like. And Benjamin, uh, uh, not him, what do you call Oh, my name, uh, the name's gone out of my Jefferson measured the crowd that Whitfield uh, preached to. 30,000 people. No PA system, obviously, then. In a natural valley, Benjamin Franklin measured this. Walked to the edge of the crowd and calculated. And he could hear Whitfield's voice distinctly. Now, this was a man who suffered from asthma all his life, and indeed eventually died of an asthma attack, who preached, they reckoned he preached three or four times a day, seven days a week for 40 years. Now you tell, any time I feel kind of tired, I dip into Whitfield and catch myself warm. God used an insignificant person, someone, a preacher. Society in those days despised preachers, just like today, society has no time for the church unless there's a coronation or a royal wedding. They like the church then. Other than that, not interested. But God used an insignificant. And out of that came the Great Awakening in the United States and in England. Meanwhile, in France, there's a revolution going on. But England 
and Scotland and Wales and Ireland were saved from that because of this mighty revival that God sent. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's what we need today. That's what we need to pray for. Even though the signs are not, they're not encouraging at the moment, our God is real and he's all-powerful. Let's seek him. Let's pray. 